the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 6th. The sunshine swing is finally upon us. The next month on the WTA and ATP calendar dedicated to the back-to-back 1,000-level events happening in Indian Wells and Miami. Of course, our Cracked Rackets team will have coverage of each and every day of those events. How could we not, as it is always such a thrill to see so many of the top players in the world compete in back-to-back events within a single month time? Time span, of course, over the next few days, we know it's our job to get all of you prepared for the start of Indian Wells. As such, I can tell all of you, I'm very much looking forward to having our dear friend and Cracked Rackets contributor, Gil Gross, on this show to discuss our top men's contenders. I'm very much looking forward to having David Kane back on the show this week as well. He and I are going to explore the opportunity for the countless American men having success on the ATP Tour right now, what they can do with this moment, back-to-back events, 1,000-level events within their home country, feels like this is a massive opportunity for American men's tennis. And so David and I are going to explore that topic with more depth. I'm not entirely sure who's going to be joining me for our top WTA contenders at Indian Wells, but I promise you I will have a guest for that show. I promise you I will be breaking down my top women's contenders as well. So we'll have all of those shows for you over the course of the next few days as we prepare for the start of the Sunshine Swing. That said, before we can turn the page on everything that's happened over the course of the past week, I still have to go through a couple of results that we were offered on on Sunday in the pro tennis world. Of course, we had two tour-level events come to their conclusions. You had Nicolas Yari on home soil capturing his second career title. He takes the crown in Santiago. So many three-set victories for Yari over the course of the past week, and yet through it all, his serve his forehand shine through. I want to talk about what I saw in his game, not just, again, the surface-level things, but there was a boldness, dare I say, in the biggest moments. And what what was that boldness, excuse me, propelled by the home crowd? That's a topic we can explore as well. But boy, was he phenomenal in capturing the second title of his career. And honestly, I'm kind of in on Echeverry. I'm not pushing all of the chips in, but I'll call the big blind. I'm willing to see what the flop looks like, what the next few years for Tomas Martin Echeverry, ultimately how they unfold, excuse me, because... I think foundationally there's a lot to like, and I want to make a comparison on this show. I don't think it's particularly bold. I'm curious what you all think in terms of who I see when I watch Tomas Martin Echeverri play. But again, want to talk Santiago, some final South American clay court swing thoughts. Uh, Of course, got to talk about the Monterey final as well. Caroline Garcia, you thought, you know, again, the way she cruised to the final that even though she was facing Donna Vekic, the way Garcia was playing it. It just felt like her serve, her first forehand, they were undeniable. But man, Donna Vekic hasn't just refound her form. As David Kane alluded to yesterday, she's playing the best tennis of her career. And again, I'm going to turn to that word. There was a boldness, a decisiveness from Vekic in the biggest moments of the match that ultimately allowed her to capture her for, uh, fourth title, excuse me, her first since 2021. It was a couple of good Sunday finals. So again, want to talk about two players who took home the crown. And then how could I not shine a light on Alexander Kovacevic? 
that's my guy. I mean, the former Illinois All-American who's appeared on our Cracked Interviews podcast multiple times and you know now finds himself on the precipice of the top 100 as he captures another challenger title, this time in Waco. The weapons are real. We'll talk about them. I don't have a fully formed take on Luca Van Asha yet, but I do want to talk about this moment in French men's tennis because... We haven't had a moment in French men's tennis that didn't involve a retirement or an injury in quite a bit of time. And I'm going to use that word again. I think we're on the precipice of a moment in French men's tennis. I'm not sure if it's going to be Arthur Fies, if it's going to be Van Asha. But I'll tell you what, enough bites at the apple. Ask the American men. Eventually, things may come to fruition. So there's a fun group forming right now uh, in French men's tennis. And again, Van Asha had a really good weekend at the challenger level. So I want to offer some thoughts on him. Uh, that, we'll see what tangents I find. Of course, so much more the plan for today's show. But again, Sunshine Swing previews coming here. Over the course of the next few days, the reason we're able to explore all of these topics here on this mini break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. I hope all of you had fun uh, with my assessment of Austin, Texas Dave's review yesterday. Of course, thank you to him, I suppose, for providing the material. I do sincerely appreciate any time any of you leave us a feed, any sort of feedback, whether it be positive or negative. I appreciate that because it means you care and. How can I not respect passion for anything? So if you feel so inclined, leave us a review, whether it be on Apple, on Spotify, Twitter, Instagram. I'll tell you what, if you leave it as an Apple review, I'm more prone to reading it than probably on any other platform. Just a little insight for you listeners. Uh, But yeah, again, appreciate all of you who do take the time to offer us feedback. Appreciate all of your support. Of course, I also appreciate the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Best equipment. Best prices, one location, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's start with the action in Santiago, the conclusion to the South American clay court swing. I mean, here's the thing. And I know there was a video floating around Twitter about a fan in Mexico who was passionately supporting Donna Vekic and got warned by security, hey, you got to you know tone it down. This isn't appropriate. And Obviously, I find that reprehensible. I think we need to encourage passion. We need to encourage vociferousness from fans at events to make it a special environment because when there you have fan buy-in, this is why I'm always so inclined to enjoy the in-person college tennis experience. It's why I keep uh, impressing it upon all of you. I hope that's the right word choice is because it's the one place where partisan, passionate fanship is not only allowed, it's encouraged. You have that at college tennis matches where, again, the home crowd is going to let the away players have it and talk to any college tennis player. They enjoy those environments maybe more than anything else. I asked members of the Michigan team who played at Baylor, and that Baylor environment is special, and they said it was the most enjoyable environment they'd ever played in. To have that many people caring about your match, feeling that passionately, you know, again, roaring at you, no matter what, you just want to feel like it matters. You want to feel like the moment matters. And, you know, again, all this is my roundabout way of saying credit to every event in South America, credit to the Santiago crowd in particular. They just made this moment matter. The passion you saw at these events, and it always helps to have a player from the home country have success. And we saw that in a couple of places, right? With Sebi Baez early on. Certainly, you know, Carlos Alcaraz is one of those players who transcends home country where regardless of where he's playing, 
he's going to have a passionate crowd supporting him because he is that sort of magnificent. And you had him in back-to-back finals, which leads to captivated and compelling crowds. But then, of course, you have what Nicolas Yari did throughout the course of the weekend. Birthday alert. You knew it was coming. He's five days younger than me. I mean, that he has a kid and he's holding the kid in the trophy ceremony. The kid's grabbing the microphone and it was adorable but I'm like oh my god this guy's five days younger than me and he has a kid Alex get your act well I don't want a kid right now let the record show but I'm just saying like okay that's him for shout out to you fist bump not only do you have an ATP title you have a kid um I guess you're winning life in general and you know look on the Yari piece quickly, many people may know this story. If you're listening to this daily podcast, you may already know this story. Some of you may not. But, you know, Nicolas Yari was a guy who was one of the top juniors in the world. And obviously, I'm aware of this as he's five days younger than me. He was always a guy Colette Lewis was writing about as having success at junior slams and having success on the junior ITF circuit. And, you know, he was a guy who got into the top 200, top 100 pretty quickly in his career. You know, by the time I was graduated in college, 2017, and the reason I just compared to the timeline is because it's like, again, I'm, I just think that might help as a framework for all of you common people at home, you know, I'm graduating college, 21 turning 22. When he's 21 turning 22, he's a top 100 player in the world. And he made, you know, um, you know, deep runs at ATP 500, uh, excuse me, 250 events before and had a couple of quarterfinals, makes his first final in 2018. And, you know, again, this is a guy who won an ATP title back in 2019 as well. But then, of course, 2020, he gets the provisional suspension and he was suspended uh, after, but, you know, due to testing positive for a couple of banned substances, the thing was he was subsequently cleared as it was you know, said by the ITF and by the Tennis Integrity Unit that Yari bore no significant fault or negligence for his violation. And so the ban expired and Yari was allowed back on tour. My, you know, for some people, you test positive for a banned substance, you are persona non grata, that you're going to write them off because you think if, you know, again, if you're trying to give yourself a it's not if it's not a level playing field, if you break the rules, that's a disqualifying sort of moment for a player. And I understand any fan who feels that way. I don't. Like, again, cleared. Regardless of whether he was aware or wasn't aware of what he was taking, he was cleared by the formal process. I would also point out that, you know, again, he's a 23, 24-year-old kid who made a mistake, no doubt about that, but ultimately now over the past year has gone about working his way back, has gone through the challenger level events, has gone through, you know, the qualifying levels of ATP 250s and now, you know, has this ultimate moment of redemption, winning a title on home soil in front of a home crowd that was just aching for this sort of success day in, day out. And, you know, again, for Yari to win as many three-set matches as he did throughout the course of the week. I mean, three sets against Schwartzman, three sets against Hanfman, three sets against Munar, three sets against Echeverry. Those were his final four matches of the event. And in each of them, what allows him to get through? A, to have a ruckus crowd behind you, especially when you're playing 7-6 in the third against Schwartzman or, you know, down a mini break in the second set breaker against Echeverry in the final. And, you know, the crowd, you, you, you do one thing well, now the crowd roars to you. What that does for your uh, confidence internally, one can only 
imagine that. And those are the sort of things you dream about, right? As a tennis fan is having a home crowd behind you. You Come on. If you're listening to this podcast, tell me you've never once been on a treadmill or never once been on the exercise bike or never once been playing tennis yourself. And in that moment, you're imagining yourself with this sort of opportunity, capturing a massive title and, you know, again, playing in front of a home crowd that's propelling you on against a rival. And it's just the moment you dream about as a kid, the moment you dream about as a tennis player. And Nicholas, you already got to experience that throughout the course of the week. And it's just one of those special things that, again, I'll talk about his tennis in a moment, what allowed him to have that success. But God, was it special. It was fun to watch. Just again, a partisan crowd, which you just don't see in professional environments or never in the fun way, the, dare I say, innocent way of watching this. Again, a home crowd propel a home countryman on home soil who's trying to work his way back after this, you know, again, clear-cut mistake and just the redemption offered in this moment the the redemption is the wrong word because again does he need redemption for testing positive for a banned substance no that's probably a bit hyperbolic but just to see the gratification of this moment of the the work it took to work his way from you know he was inside the top 100 now you have to build your ranking all the way back and now he's back up to number 52 in the live rankings and just back in the ball game back on the trajectory he figured he would be on when he was 19, 20, 21 years old. It was a special moment. And then you do get to bring your kid on stage after for the post-match interview. You do have all the crowd staying there and roaring you through the trophy ceremony because they feel as though they played a role in helping propel Yari forward. It was just delightful. It really was. It was a fun viewing experience. I would go watch the highlights of the final if you can, if you haven't already. I, I, it's worth the 11 minutes of your time, however long that highlight video is. Um, it, this was a really fun match. And again, that's just with the environment. I didn't even talk about the tennis itself. By the way, right now, Nicolas Yari is entered in the Santiago Challenger this week. He's supposed to play former Baylor All-American Matthias Soto. That's hilarious. That's crazy. He's 52 in the world now. Wouldn't shock me if we see a withdrawal there. Um, I mean, you look for Yari, you know, again, against Echeverry, he was broken once, once. And it was when he was leading by a break in the second set. It was up 4-2. Echeverry gets the break back. Again, they're on serve through the first. First serve, first forehand. I mean, the heaviness of the Nicolas Yari ball, you're just frozen as his opponent because if he goes inside out, now you're stretched so far. If he goes inside and you have so much ground to cover, if he's loading, you know, if he has time to load on that forehand, you're just in trouble because of the heaviness of that ball. And, you know, I, I loved obviously his ability to convert throughout the course of the week. He, you know, was broken once by Achiveri, once by Hanfman, five times total against Munar, but only, uh, twice in sets two and three and then you know once against Juan Pablo Varias in round one three times against Schwartzman like the serve was that good all week you know he's holding serve right now 86.4 percent of the time and he's playing on clay court he's playing clay court tennis like it's fascinating to me that his weapons didn't translate earlier on faster surfaces than they have and we can talk about that in a second when we look at the stats but boy his serve his forehand Again, the heaviness of that ball, you are just on your back foot. Your momentum as your his opponent is moving backwards in the court. And that's where, man, you got to credit Tomas Martin Echeverry. 
exceptional mover on the clay courts. And, you know, there's a reason. I do think Tomas Martin Echeverry is more than uh, – has more than earned his current ranking uh, of number 69 in the live rankings for the 23-year-old. The comparison I wanted to make that I alluded to earlier, Casper Rude-esque. Like, it reminds me a lot of Rude. Now, not as much action on his forehand, and I do think the Casper Rude forehand backswing is more compact. I think there's more action from a topspin perspective on the ball that Casper Rude generates. I think he finds the lines, uh, the corners, excuse me, a little bit better, gets outside the ball a little bit better, though I do like Echeverry's drive on that forehand wing, but man, it's the way Echeverry drives through the backhand and how similar their technique is, how compact it is, how outside of the ball they're able to get. And then I think Echeverry has a little bit more pop than Casper Ruud on that backhand wing. And I just think they both slide so well in and out of corners. They both move the ball so well around the court. You know, Echeverry was able, with his strength, with his fluidity, with that backhand technique, to drive the, you know, to respond to the Yari inside-out forehand, to drive that ball back with enough depth, with enough action on it that Yari didn't just have easy first forehands to deal with. I thought Echeverry was also very efficient, at least in the first set, by the way, for Yari. And I thought Echeverry was very efficient with, in his own service games, being more aggressive with his plus one in this match in particular than he was even against a Sarundalo, against Elijevic. Now, I thought he was this aggressive against Baez as well, but, you know, that aggression combined with the immense physicality, he's just a really tough out on this surface. You got to have a weapon to hit through him, and you got to be bold in the biggest moments. And Nicolas Yari was both of those things, again. That ability, two four, he's down the mini break, sneaks his way forward behind a big forehand, executes a ridiculous like half volley backhand drop shot that trickles its way over. Crowd goes nuts. Holds serve on his next two points to take that five four lead, and you know again gets that mini break at five all. A huge serve wide uh, to take to set up the, and take the set point. And then again, just down the third set, you could tell Echeverry didn't have enough left in his legs because the heaviness of that Nicolas Yari ball, it just wears on you over time. And tracking things down in the corner just becomes a little bit more difficult. And unless you're fully there and driving that ball with depth, Yari's got the weapon. He's Now he's got the opening. Now he's going to take the big swing. Credit to him. He continued to follow the ball forward really well to the net. He hit. He was so decisive with his overhead. And it, as we learned, that's a really hard ball to put away, not for Nicolas Yari. He hit that overhead so confidently all week long. Again, I see it's his second title of his career up to number 52 in the live rankings. I see real weapons. Like, it's, it's shocking to me. You look for Yari now, who, by the way, over his last 52 weeks, 48 and 24, qualifies for the two-thirds rule, as you know. And, you know, again, looking for Nicolas Yari now uh, during that two-thirds stretch of time. He's made the quarterfinals uh, overall, uh, excuse me, in his last 52 weeks at nine different events, now three times at the ATP level, six times at the challenger level. Um, again, it's worth noting all of those results have come on clay. And it's crazy to me. You look for Nicolas Yari in his career on hard courts at the ATP level, 13 and 33 overall in his career. You look for him even at challenger levels in hard courts. Yari's 23 and 20 overall. Now he does have a couple of challenger finals and a challenger title on hard courts, but with his weapons, that does surprise me. Now he's got a big forehand backswing. He takes big cuts at the ball and 
on the return of serve, I can understand why he'd struggle in particular. But man, there's no reason he can't have success on more success on serve moving forward on hard courts. And with how well he volleys as well, one big forehand, you move forward, you get a clean look at the volley. I just think his plus one game should translate. I thought he had the backhand with great depth, although you can tell, again, it helps for him to be on the clay courts, have a little bit more time. He's very fluid on clay. I don't know if he'd be as good compared to the field changing directions on hard courts, how well that movement translates. That's something I'll be looking forward to. But, I mean, again, Yari had his that, – that serve forehand is a top 50 weapon. More than that, it's a top 25 weapon. Now, again, the rest of the game isn't necessarily top 25 caliber yet because he does take some big cuts. He's not the most big uh, – he's not the most fluid mover, but you have the weapon. You're in the ball game. He does – 27 years old, but it's a young, younger 27 than you'd think. Uh, you look in his career, 68 and 73 overall at the tour level, including uh, qualifying level matches. He's made uh, a grand total in his career of 14 different quarterfinals. Interestingly enough, his last hardcore quarterfinal, August 2018. He does have one grass court quarterfinal, June 2019. Yeah, I need to see one. I need to see one hard, hard court quarterfinal this year before we start talking about his ceiling. I I do think he's a top fifty guy. Yeah, I mean, again, it's in the Cressy conversation, where it's just like at a certain point, doesn't the serve become undeniable? And they both do it in different ways. Cressy with the serve and volley, Yari particularly on the clay with the serve and time to wind up the first forehand. But like, it's a lot of clay court matches a lot of clay court events on the calendar and i i do i need to see more hardcore tennis at Iari, but i think it's going to translate i'm looking forward to watching it now number 52 in the world he's again positioned himself perfectly for the european swing uh coming up these next few months and then same for echeverry and look echeverry now over his last 52 weeks 56 and 32 overall uh he's played a ton of matches at the challenger level and you know you look for echeverry overall he's played the majority of his matches uh indeed uh well actually let's look at the atp level he is 9 and 16 yeah challenger level 41 and 15 over the past year it's because of the physicality he brings if you don't have a weapon to hit through him it is going to be awfully hard to beat him now again you look overall in his career uh Tomas Martin Echeverry 26 and 21 on hard courts won a match at the Australian Open this year got a win over Gregoire Beret uh won a match in Tel Aviv in San Diego at the end of last season as well beat Karatsev in Tel Aviv for what it's worth on an indoor hard court I think it's a well-rounded game. Like, I want to see his, yeah, I think his forehand on a faster surface might be a little bit more of a problem, but what he brings physically, uh, how well he moves the serve, how well he changes directions and attacks with his backhand, there's top 100 player in there for sure. Like, he is a top 100 player right now. Does he have a definitive weapon to be a top 25 guy? I don't see it yet. Does that physicality have a place in the top 50 for a two-year stretch? Absolutely. Maybe that's the ceiling. I don't know. But I think Echeverry is just going to be in the mix moving forward. And so, again, really good run from him. You know, you look at the semifinalists in Santiago. Yari, the win over Munar. That was a big semifinal and a much-needed one for Munar, who has had plenty of challenger-level success over the course of the past year. But uh, first uh, semifinal, first quarterfinal for him, excuse me, at the ATP level since Stand, which was July of last year. First semifinal for him at the ATP level uh, since all the way back 
in Parma of May 2021. And look, Munar will take it, right? He was a guy who was on the precipice of falling out of the top uh, 75. Munar now sitting at number 62 with that semifinal result. So a good week for him. And then, look, for Sebi Baez, considering how poor Baez's form had been coming into this clay court stretch for Baez to go and run off eight victories over the course of four events, make a semifinal, a quarterfinal, and win a title in Cordoba, keeps himself in the top 50 mix. And for Sebi Baez now, you look at the live rankings, Baez is currently sitting uh, with this run at number 34, going into the Sunshine Swing. Now, again, it was a disaster for Baez, no doubt about that, coming into this clay court stretch. And you look for him over his last 52 weeks on hard courts. Baez is 1-17 in 17 overall, which is nuts, by the way. 1-17. in 17 is he, I mean, I knew he had struggled, but I didn't think it was—I thought it was like, I don't know, 3-14, which is better than 1-17, in 17, a 5-6 and six win over Sinego, for those of you wondering— I mean, Indian Wells is the closest thing you have to a hard court that plays like clay. Slow, high bouncing. His forehand looked like a rocket ship. He has confidence once again. Obviously, with the clay courts coming up, that he was able to keep himself in the top 50 and get into things like Madrid, Rome, Barcelona, Monte Carlo. That's where Sebi Baez is going to make his bones on the tour moving forward. But... I mean, again, I think he was one of the biggest winners of the South American clay court swing. Yari getting back into the top 55, making a semifinal, what, in Rio, I want to say, and winning the title in Santiago. You know, Juan Pablo Varias making a semifinal in Buenos Aires and consolidating his spot now in the top 100. Juan Pablo Varias currently sitting uh, at number 83. Shout out to my birthday brother, October 6, 95. Stick together. Um, I'm trying to think who else were the biggest winners. I mean, obviously Nori for beating Alcaraz, Alcaraz back-to-back finals, got injured in the final, you know, in that final event, but looked progressively better when he was healthy. Dusan Lajevic, decent run as well. Like it was the names you'd expect all had pretty solid clay court swings. And, you know, again, I think the biggest note, is really Sebi Baez because when Baez makes a quarterfinal at one of the 1,000-level events on clay in Europe over the next couple of months, like it shouldn't shock anyone. It really shouldn't. And so I would say those are my final thoughts on everything that happened in South America. But again, really fun clay court swing. And if you want to get into the depths, you want to nerd out, I'd point all of you to a podcast I did about 10 days ago with David Gertler, where we really got into the weeds on all the guys who competed in South America over the course of the past month. So uh, for extended thoughts, go check out that show. That's where things rest for me in Santiago and South America. I do want to go to Mexico, though, next, because I do want to talk about Caroline Garcia and Donna Vekic. And, I mean, look, Vekic wins title number four. Vekic now 21-4 since October 10th of last year. You rip off a 25-match, you know, 25-match sample size where you have 21 total victories where, you know, you earn wins over a Garcia, over a Sabalenka, Danielle Collins, Maria Sakari, Carolina Pliskova, Ludmilla Samsonova at the Australian Open. I forgot about that one. Fruvertova isn't the worst win considering how hot Fruvertova was going into their uh, second-round match in Australia. Uh, excuse me, their fourth-round match in Australia. Donna Vekic has come to play. 
And the biggest thing for me, both statistically and via the eye test, what is Donna Vekic doing better than she's ever done before in her career? It's how successful she is holding serve. That first serve has turned into just such a weapon. And it it's not necessarily the first serve itself, but her service game, her first strike is really how I should have phrased it. There were multiple times. What was it? Her two, I don't know, her three all service game in the third set where she faced three break points. Each of them fought off with big first serves, all the different targets. One of them T, one of them body, one of them not quite wide, but body backhand. Each of them followed up inside out winner, inside in winner, ridiculous inside out angle that I don't even think she figured she was going to hit for the third one to fight off all three break points. And, you know, again, you look for Vekic in the final. She fought off 14 of the 16 break points that she faced in that 6-4-3-6-7-5 victory over Garcia. And look, I mean, Garcia played fantastic first strike tennis herself. If you're Caroline Garcia, you're kicking yourself because she had a plethora of opportunities. And big picture, for Caroline Garcia, the story continues to be if you don't have a weapon to throw her off the spot, she's going to beat you. She's going to overwhelm you. If she has loopy second serves or high sitting serves to attack, that aggressive return positioning, her her go big at all costs mentality just overwhelms you because she does execute it that well. But Vekic could hit her off her spot. And like, again, the defensive skill set for Caroline Garcia, if she's going to be a unequivocal, you know, number one, tier one sort of player, that's the that's the final piece. And it's crazy because she's been a part of our lives for so long. Caroline Garcia is what? I want to say, yeah, turns 30 years old in October. Okay, maybe she's not going to become a more fluid, dynamic athlete, but and not that she needs to, by the way. I, I mean, she's not going to like take the more defensive posturing is what I mean by that. But you do feel like she could step three feet further back on the return of serve, give herself a little bit more – a bigger target to play down the center with and then go for the big forehand because you just feel like given her double success, given what you see when she's in a baseline rally, that shot is within her. I mean again, like I don't think Garcia played poorly though. You, and you look for Carolyn Garcia who faced three break points throughout the course of the match. Now she got broken on all three, but she faced three total break points compared to the 16 that Vekic faced. It was good tennis. It was first strike tennis. Didn't have a ton of 10 ball plus shot rallies. You know, again, these were thin margins. And I do think Vekic's ability to absorb pace on the backhand wing is what separated the two of them. Vekic was a little bit more capable of doing damage with her down the line backhand on the redirect uh, than Garcia was of manufacturing her own pace on that backhand wing. And, you know, again, Vekic played tough matches all week long. Bonaventure, which is just a particularly bad matchup with how she get Beckett stretched, you know, uh, to beat an informed Ju Lin in the semifinals as well. And just, you know, again, her pace sort of overwhelmed uh, Ju Lin by the end of that match. And then to go plus one with someone who has been a top five player now for multiple months in Caroline Garcia. Donna Vekic is back, and you look for Vekic with the win. She's up to number 21 in the live rankings, two off of her career high with the sunshine swing coming up. I mean, again, 21-4 and four now. She's winning 83% of her matches over a four-month stretch. 84%, excuse me. Now, 20, uh, yeah, 21-4. and four. Um, 
what's amazing is from August 20 to September 26th, Donna Vekic, August 2020, excuse me, to September 26th. So the start of the COVID era to September, end of September last year, Vekic went 43 and 40 overall. She made a grand total of five quarterfinals. She only made it past the quarterfinals in one event, uh, which was the title she won in Cormayor in 2021. I mean, again, 43 and 44 two plus year for two years she went 43 and 40 and over the course of two years made 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 it past the quarterfinals one time only made five quarterfinals and has now ripped off a 21 and 4 stretch and again you look for Donna Vekic 26 years old she turns 27 in June just phenomenal tennis uh played by uh the now world number 21. And again, you look for Donna Vekic. She's actually, it's funny. She fell out of the top 25 club. Uh, right now, only seven players ranking top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Those players, Sviantek, Pagula, or Sviantek top 10, Pagula top 15, Halep, Jabur, Goff, Alexandrova top 20, Anisimova top 25. If you were going to expand it to the top 30 club, you'd add Sabalenka, Vekic, Krejcikova, Bojkova, Georgie, and Para. I mean, those three names delegitimized the group a little bit more, but like David King kind of said it. A top seven is forming on the WTA Tour, and Donna Vekic isn't out of the conversation for those final spots. She's propelled herself back into that Kudermatova, Kasakina, dare I say, Belinda Benchichesque tier, where it's not quite Pagula. Goff, healthy Jabur, obviously Krejcikova level of consistency, healthy Krejcikova levels of consistency, but man, it's right up there. So credit to Donna Vekic. Again, you look for Caroline Garcia. She has four wins to defend between now and really the start of Wimbledon. Garcia, since winning the title in Bad Hamburg, a ridiculous 52-15 and 15 overall. She's now made the final at six different events. She's made the quarterfinal at 10 different events. I mean, that's ridiculous. A remarkable run of success for the 29-year-old who, again, with only four wins to defend over the course of the clay court season, that's why she's playing so much. Number two is in sight. She trails Arena Sabalenka by 1,280 points. That's not a ton heading into the clay court season and with the two 1,000-level events in the sunshine swing coming. Like, is she going to catch Iga? She'd have to win everything. Can she get herself up to it? Certainly, can she catch Pagula, who she's 675 points behind? Absolutely, and that would get her to a new career high of number three. She's chasing a career high. She's in the prime of her career. How can you not respect that? Uh, We ask players to play. Caroline Garcia plays. And so, again, really fun uh, Monterey final, really fun event there. Shout out to Lisa Mertens, who got a much-needed semifinal just to keep herself in that top 35 conversation. And currently, uh, Elisa Mertens, with that result sitting, excuse me, currently, yeah, at number 38. Uh, so in that conversation, gets into main draws of Indian Wells, Miami, without having to play qualifying. But uh, And then Julin, who, again, just continues to capitalize on her hot start to the season. She obviously continues to reach new career highs. And with her semifinals, she's up to uh, currently number 43 in the live rankings, which, again, sunshine swing. You're going to get to see plenty of Julin. With that said, my final thoughts here uh, for today's show I want to talk about a couple of challenger results. Alexander Kovacevic, our guy, former Illinois All-American, 
back into title town on the ATP Challenger title. It's his second Challenger title of the year, I believe. He's fewer than five. I think it's like five guys have won multiple Challenger titles. I apologize. I don't have the exact number. I know it's right around five um, guys have won multiple Challenger titles here this season. And, you know, for him now uh, to win the title over Ibing Wu in Cleveland, to beat Mueller, Goyo, you know, all these different guys. He dropped one set in Waco on his way to the title. And look, he was dominant on serve. You look for Kova, he faced no more than four break points in every match he played. He was broken no more than one time in every match that he played. Again, it's not quite Nicolas Yari in the overwhelming amount of pace, but Kova is so precise. The depth, the action on his serve, on his first forehand plays elite first strike tennis. And I keep bringing up this quote whenever I talk about Kova, but I was talking with Bjorn Fertangelo, who shout out to he and Matty Keys. They've been together for a long time, now finally engaged. Um, he was discussing what makes Kova so special. He said the way Kova gets outside the ball on the forehand, his ability to generate not just depth, but angle and pace and just direction with his ball it's special that not a lot of guys, even when they're slapping through forehands, they're not getting outside of the ball to generate, again, that action on it the way that Kova does. Backhand has been more impressive. He's put on some muscle, has clearly become a better, more fluid mover. He's great, uh, a good volleyer, knows where to go, what to do, and solid hands up there as well. Working on the backhand slice, it continues to improve. I mean, you look for Kovey's up to new career high, number 121 now in the rankings and, you know, or excuse me, up to number 107 in the live rankings now. I mean, doesn't have a ton of points to defend yet till the summer begins as well. You look for Kova between now and the start of the summer. Alexander Kovacevic, 51 and 30 overall in his last 50 weeks, but, you know, a lot of challenger qualifying over the next month, month and a half. You know, he has one quarterfinal at a challenger level to defend before May a quarterfinal and a semifinal to defend uh, before the start of July. Yeah, that, that's nothing. And now he's getting into challenger draws. I know he's got that wild card into Indian Wells also. He could absolutely beat someone. Just depends on who he's going to face, but has the weapons. Give him a little bit more time, higher bouncing shot. I think Kovas can absolutely have some success uh, during the sunshine swing. And then, look, speaking of success, it's a moment. Here for French men's tennis, obviously Arthur Fee starts off with the massive January semi and February makes a semifinal, quarterfinal of a couple ATP events, has success at the challenger level as well. He's 18 years old and currently sitting at 105 in the live rankings. You know who just passed him? Number 104, 18-year-old Luca Van Asche, uh, who wins the challenger title in Pau. And, you know, again, for Van Asche, not just to win it, but to beat Rinder Kinesh in straight sets in the semifinals, to beat Ugo Umber, who are probably the two younger, you know, prime-aged faces right now in French men's tennis, those two in Quinton Halise, Vanasha gets both of them. And, you know, again, move the ball around the court really well in these matches, had the weapons to match Rinder Kinesh on serve and fought off seven of the eight break points that he faced. And, you know, again, went first strike to first strike with Umber and was able to pressure Umber and draw the errors that Umber will be willingly give away at times uh, when pressured by pace. But man, again, both Fee and Van Asha, who are successful juniors, they can just do some things. They've got some weapons. I'm intrigued 
teenagers on the precipice of the top 100. You look at the top 19 and, you know, under 19 talent, so 18 and younger in the world. Highest rank is Van Asch at 104. Fees is next at 105. Jerry Sheng right after that at 177. Alex Mickelson, who had another semifinal at the challenger level this past week in Waco. That's back-to-back semifinals for him. He's at 302. You know, uh, uh, Ethan Quinn right now, 466. Millie Polyachek, who is supposed to go to Wake Forest, but then wins Junior Wimbledon. He's currently at 463. Oh, I forgot to mention, I think Junior Slam champion plus finalists are two-time Junior Slam finalist, Gabriel Debrew, another teenage Frenchman, the 17-year-old sitting at 498. But like, I, and of course, I had to work in American, sorry. But right now, back to France, Van Asha, Fies, uh, Gabriel Debrew. I know who's Bailey's younger brother, but I know his brother just had some success on the, uh, well, oh no, B- Bailey's Belgian, excuse me. He's not French. Um yeah, there's just a couple of teenagers right now. You want to look in general? Am I forgetting any 19-year-old Frenchmen? I don't want to disqualify them as they are also teenagers. Um, oh, yeah, Giovanni Pericard. He's at 334 in the world. That's another 19-year-old. Robin Bertrand, he's a 19-year-old, 416. Debru is the big one, 17 years old, 498. He would be the one I would watch for as well. Fees, Vanasha, Debru. It's an interesting group. It, it's their version of Fritz, Paul, Opelka, Mo, Tiafo. They're meaning the French version uh, to what the Americans had seven years ago. Um, I don't know if they're quite as good, but we'll see. Like, Let's find out. I think it's a really fun group to keep an eye on moving forward. And Obviously, by the way, I mentioned Echeverry earlier. There's a lot of really good Argentinian players right now as well. Sarundolo, Baez. Echeverry, you know, uh, Carabelli is another uh, young guy who's having success. Both Sarandolos, by the way, Juan Manuel and Francisco Sarandolo. Um, obviously, we talked about the rise of Italian tennis in the past as well. There's, there's, a, there's a couple fun bunches, a couple fun groupings, and I just think it's important to have peers to rise with you, as we've seen with the Americans. I do believe in the we all push each other forward mentality. Again, These are some final thoughts before we get into the Sunshine Swing, folks. So I hope that covers everything that happened on Sunday and you all feel up to date heading into what is, again, a really fun month on the pro tennis calendar. Of course, not just the pro tennis calendar, plenty of college tennis coming up as we head into conference play. We have Crack Rackets broadcast now on ESPN Plus every Thursday, Friday, Sunday. We're covering the SEC and ACC. Of course, we have Big Ten Sunday on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well. A shout out as Always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, on the ones and twos. He has a editing job to do, making everything happen. Shout out as well, of course, to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest items in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.